At this time, I will dismiss the children to Children's Church, and let me just say I'm half tempted today to preach a sermon on laminate flooring, as we have done so much laminate flooring this week, and I'll also take a moment and just say thanks to all those, uh, there, there have been people here late at night, even last night there were individuals here at two o'clock in the morning trying to get the children's ministry uh, room getting the floor done, and I am so grateful for that. Um, we have had, I think there's at least seven or eight people that have been here faithfully throughout the week to try to get the flooring done. Before you leave here today, make sure you at least walk over. We are not completed, but we have gotten a lot of it done this week. So if you get a chance, go over and take a look at some of that over in the Family Life Center. Many of the rooms in the children's ministry wing have been completed. Uh, most of the hallways are completed now as well. The entryway looks fantastic, and I'm just grateful for the many people who have helped to make that happen. So thank you each very much. And if you see gray or white chalk or something on me, just pretend it's not there. I probably shouldn't have worn black pants this morning, but I saw Rusty Harris out there, and his shirt was just covered. And uh, fortunately, we beat it off of him. Actually, I enjoyed being able to hit him. Um, actually, uh, he's been one of those hard workers, and we've been very grateful for that. Uh, it is a blessing to be able to worship with you this morning, to be able to celebrate the Lord's faithfulness to us. Today, I want to begin just with a brief word of information regarding things that are on the horizon. First of all, next Sunday, and Jerry mentioned it just in passing, but next Sunday is Palm Sunday. So that means Easter is sneaking up on us very, very quickly. Um, I want to encourage as many of you as possible uh, to, to participate with us and maybe even bring someone else with you during the next few weeks. Next Sunday, we'll be looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ as he was heading toward the crucifixion. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll be looking at the resurrection of Christ, but we'll also be looking forward to the second coming of Christ. As much as we look for, look forward to this time of remembering, remembering what it must have been like 2,000 years ago, the sacrifice and the victory that was won through Good Friday and Easter Sunday, our greatest hope is not just that there was something that happened 2,000 years ago, but rather we know that there is a day that is coming that Christ will come once again, and he will redeem all of humanity, all those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. As a part of those Easter Sunday services, we will have, as you heard Jerry mention, baptism. Uh, we've got individuals who will be being baptized in both services, and I'm really excited about the opportunity to participate in that. Uh, I do remind you that each of you have a role in that. I know that I may be the one, and Pastor Wiggins is going to help with this service, with the baptisms. Uh, we have the privilege of being in the water with individuals, but you have a role as well. Because this is merely a celebration of what Christ has already done, but also a celebration of what he will continue to do. You have the responsibility to walk alongside these individuals and to be the body of Christ and to be a support and encouragement. So I encourage you to make sure that you are there on Easter Sunday as we participate in that. One more thing, there will be extra events that weekend as we also have a drop-in communion event on Friday afternoon at 
noon. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll also have a sunrise service, which weather permitting will be outside. And then we'll have a breakfast to follow. We do that each year and it's a great time of fellowship with the body of Christ. And then the rest of our schedule will be as normal. Now, before I get into today's message, I do want to just share that God humbled me this past week. And I don't enjoy when he humbles me, but sometimes you just have to laugh about it. After I joked about daily last week, constantly losing her keys, I had one of those forgetful moments this week, but it wasn't with my keys. On my day off this week, I decided to go and uh, play some golf, and I got ready, walked out the door, and I was ready for a great day of golf, and I'm riding down the road, and suddenly it hit me. I forgot my sunglasses. So on the way to the golf course, there's a food line. I walk in. I thought, you know what? They've probably got some sunglasses in there. I walk in. I can't find sunglasses anywhere. So I find the manager and he's, oh yeah, we've got sunglasses. And we're talking on the way there. I told him what happened. I lost my sunglasses and we get over to where the sunglasses are. And he said, uh, I hear they are, but I'm just curious, uh, the sunglasses you're looking for. Are they the same ones that are on your hat? <laughs> and of course, I, I reached up. I said, man, I appreciate your help. I think I'm good. <laughs> and I walked out and didn't have to worry about buying a new pair of sunglasses. So I appreciate the fact that he told me before I bought the sunglasses that they were there. Anyways, it happens to all of us. And uh, next time, I'll make sure not to harass anybody in the Sunday morning service. So. As an old preacher was dying, he sent for his banker and his lawyer, both of whom were church members, and so they came to his bedside where he was about to pass. When they arrived, they were both escorted to his bedside, and he sat one on each side of his bed. The preacher grasped their hands, and he sighed contentedly, he smiled, and he stared at the ceiling, and for a while, nobody said anything, and the banker and the lawyer, they were touched by his interest in them. The fact that this old preacher would ask them to be present for his final moments, but admittedly, they were a little puzzled. He had never given them any indication that he even liked either one of them. They both remembered his many long and uncomfortable sermons about greed and covetousness that made them squirm in their seats. Finally, the banker said, Preacher, why'd you ask us to come? The preacher said weakly, Jesus died between two thieves, and that's how I want to go to. <laughs> if there are any lawyers or bankers in this crowd today, please enjoy the humor. It is nothing personal. Jokes like this, as well as the stereotypes that are often associated with certain professions like lawyers and sometimes even bankers or used car dealers, they illustrate the fact that there has always been a struggle with greed in our culture. Luke 12 shares one of those great teaching moments where Jesus is able to pour into his disciples along with anyone else who will listen because crowds gathered around everywhere that he went. The first 12 verses demonstrate exactly how important this time of teaching would be. In fact, in those few verses, Jesus would teach about some very important things. 
He talked about hypocrisy, especially related to the Pharisees. He would talk about the fact that everything would one day be revealed. There'll be no secrets. He would talk about death and the coming judgment of God. He would also talk about the need to acknowledge the Lord and the danger of committing blasphemy, especially against the Holy Spirit. Clearly, these are weighty issues, things that Jesus' followers needed to be aware of. And then just as it feels like Jesus is getting serious about issues that we all need to know about, a man cuts in with a very important interruption. I say that sarcastically. Look at it with me. You heard daily read a portion of it already. Look at it with me, verses 13 through 15 to begin with. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So Jesus is addressing all of these extremely important issues, things that would apply to the whole of humanity. And suddenly this guy wants to talk about his brother's unwillingness to share the inheritance. Wow, this does seem really important, doesn't it? Actually, what this really reveals is that this man had his own agenda that day. And he was at best too self-consumed by his own agenda to actually hear what Jesus was saying. Probably what he should have been doing was saying, man, I need to soak this in. There's something deep here that I need. But he's so focused on what he wants at that moment. There are a few times, very few times, that we see Jesus seemingly become irritable toward those who come before him. But this might have been one of those occasions. Many theologians have suggested that some of his frustration is because this individual may not have been as sincere as it seems. Some have suggested that he was more of a heckler trying to disrupt what Jesus was talking about. He recognized that this was important stuff and he just wanted to interrupt. But regardless of his intentions, Jesus responds with an interesting question. Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? What makes this question so interesting is that Jesus had actually been appointed already as the judge of all humanity. So there's no more perfect individual to settle this dispute. In fact, the correct answer to this question would have been, well, your dad did, because it was his heavenly father who actually had placed him in that role. But before anyone could answer the question, Jesus turns this into a teaching moment. And it doesn't matter whether it is the brother who is greedy or the one who is coming to Jesus who is being greedy. What matters is that Jesus already knew that this was a struggle for all of humanity, you and me included. 
that there is a natural tendency among mankind to be mentally dominated by a desire for more. And that's not always a healthy thing. It can be a great thing in business. You want to do a better job than what you did before. And even within your family, you're constantly wanting to improve. And there's this idea that I want more and I I need to do more. But it can become a very unhealthy thing. Jesus knew that the love of money was the root of all kinds of evil. So Jesus says, let's go ahead and talk about this for a moment. You kind of irritated me a little bit with the question, but since you brought it up, let's talk about it. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he goes into our parable. This is what he says, beginning in verse 16. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry." But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, you all know that greed was not new to humanity. This guy was not the first one to have to struggle with greed. And it certainly wasn't something that would disappear after this encounter with Jesus. I think of some of the more notable examples of greed in Scripture, both before and after this parable. And my mind immediately goes back to Achan. He was an individual. He's recorded in Joshua chapter 7. God was finally giving the Israelites what they had longed for for so long, 40-plus years of wandering in the desert, and they finally are entering the promised land. They've had no place to call home, and now... They're about to have a place to call home. The first city that they come to is Jericho. And as they go in to take the city of Jericho, they're instructed to not keep any of the gold, silver, or bronze for themselves. This was a rich land. There was much prosperity in Jericho. What's interesting is every other time that they would go into battle in the promised land, the Lord would allow them to keep the plunder. But this one time, you are to take all the gold, the silver, and the bronze, and you are to give it to the Lord. It is to be in his temple. The temple would not yet be built, but it is to go toward the temple. But Achan greedily kept it all for himself. He actually took it and he buried the gold and the silver and the bronze in his tent. We're not talking about a big tent where there were uh, eight rooms in your tent, but this was a small tent where his family would have lived. And he takes it and he buries it in the tent. Now, it should be noted that all sin comes with a price. And rarely are you the only one who is impacted by your own sinful choices. There is almost always some type of collateral damage. People you love and you care about who pay a price because of your own sinful choices. 
It may be that you think you're getting away with sin, but at some point it will catch up to you and those whom you love. My guess is Achan thought he had gotten away with it. He goes into his tent and everything's good and we're not sure how much time would pass until the next battle would take place, which was against a small nation named Ai. But God would not ignore the sin that had taken place. In Achan's case, Israel would pay a great price for this single act of greed. 36 soldiers would be killed in that next battle simply because God would not bless Israel while they were living in disobedience to him. 36 soldiers, we think back to the Gulf War, we think back to the Vietnam War, the Korean War, or any of the world wars, and we think, wow, we wish we only lost 36 people. But for the Israelites, this was a crushing defeat. You see, they would go into battle and not lose anyone because the Lord's hand of blessing had been upon, upon them. So imagine you've got 36 families that have paid the price with their lives because of one man's sin. It's a pretty steep cost when you think about it. In fact, it almost seems unfair. Achan would also pay a price, a great price, with he and his entire family also being struck down. It's obvious that greed didn't put his family into a better position. They would certainly be able to relate to the words of Proverbs 15, 27, which says the greedy bring ruin to their households. Or consider a New Testament example of greed. We also have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They too would be all too familiar with Proverbs 15, 27, as their household would come to an abrupt end as a result of what's recorded in Acts 5. They were the ones who sold a piece of property and gave some of it to the church, but they lied, secretly keeping a portion of the proceeds for themselves. There's an interesting example of greed within them. You see, for them, it wasn't just about money. Sure, there was a financial element. Imagine that they sold their property for $100,000. I know they didn't deal with dollars. They dealt with denarii. You get the idea in our terms. Imagine they sold their property for $100,000. They claimed to have sold it for $50,000. They did so in order to keep the other $50,000 for themselves. And by the way, before we get into the issue of greed, it should be noted that they're lying. That's a problem. But what else might Ananias and Sapphira have been looking for? Their story is located, I mentioned, in Acts chapter 5. But in Acts 4, verse 32 through 36, we see a celebration of the generosity of God's people. People are sharing with one another, and there's even a reference to an individual who will later be referred to as Barnabas, one of the New Testament leaders. He sold his property, giving the proceeds to the church to help meet the needs of others. Do you think that those who were in need were pretty grateful for this incredible act of generosity? Obviously, they would have been. Well, it would seem that Ananias and Sapphira were very eager to be celebrated just as this other person had apparently been celebrated. This is really important for us to note, by the way. Greed is not always financial in nature. 
Jesus began this address by warning the audience to be careful to guard against all kinds of greed. That means it's more than just money. And it makes sense as I can be greedy with many, many things. I can be greedy with people. I can be greedy with just about anything. About a month or so ago, I preached on Amnon, one of the sons of David. He was greedy for sexual pleasure, would actually end up raping his own sister. Samson, at times, would also reveal the same type of greed for sexual lust. Absalom, another son of David, he was greedy for power, even willing to overthrow his own father from the throne. And Solomon, yet another son of David, was greedy for both status and security. Therefore, he had relations with every nation nearby. Greedy, greed is not always about money. It can be about money, but it's typically about a lot more than just dollars and cents. In today's parable, we see first that we're talking about a wealthy man. He has been blessed by God, and it would seem that the blessings just continue. The ground of a certain rich man is what it says, yielded an abundant harvest. Maybe you've wondered why it is that the poor seem to just get poor and the rich seem to just get richer. I know that at times I have. And this guy certainly fits that thought. He's already rich and now his field will produce a great crop. Before I share anything else, let me challenge you to consider the many ways that God has already blessed you. You see, for most of us, we would put ourselves in this poor category. We put ourselves in a category where we don't have anything. We look at everybody else and all that they have, and we think, why can't I have that much? But let's look at it from a different perspective this morning. How has the Lord already blessed you? He has likely been very, very good to you. He's given most of us a home to live in, pretty good health, a family, a church, maybe for some of us a job. He's given us skills and abilities to do those jobs. He's given us food for our table. And even better than all of that, he has given us all the opportunity for salvation and a hope for something greater that awaits us even beyond this life. We have much that we ought to give thanks for today. There's no reference to this man ever giving thanks to the Lord for his blessings. It's a good place for us to start so we don't end up being like this guy. But maybe you haven't had as much as others. Let me just say that I don't know for sure why God chooses to bless one person with prosperity while others tend to struggle. But I do know that it is the Lord who chooses to bless, and he's wiser than I am, and he's wiser than you are. And the blessing is in no way a bad thing. He simply chooses to give. However, if you become so focused on the blessing that you lose sight of the blesser, then trouble is sure to follow. Proverbs 28, 22 says, the stingy are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. In our story, Jesus tells us that the man doesn't see this blessing as a resource for good but instead it's simply a tool to get rich. 
And so he sets out to build bigger barns, tearing down his old ones and looking forward to a day where he can just sit back and take it easy. And we're not talking about retirement here. Retirement can be a very good thing. We're talking about the freedom to become a slacker. Let's just lay around, let's eat and be merry. Let's just be happy. Let's, let's just enjoy the ride. I have a friend who retired from the military at the age of 38. Wouldn't it be nice to retire at the age of 38 after 20 years of service? His retirement, though, didn't mean that he stopped working or stopped making a difference. He still works very hard. It just looks very different than what it used to. My guess is that many of you have worked very, very hard, and now you find yourself in retirement. That doesn't mean that you stop living. In fact, I heard from one of you not that long ago who stated that since retirement, they didn't know how they had time to get anything done before. It seems as if they are busier now than they had ever been during their quote-unquote working days. Now back to the parable, Jesus tells us that this man is a fool. I was always told not to call somebody a fool, but since Jesus said it, it's okay. Jesus says this man's a fool. He's longed for prosperity, but what he failed to realize was exactly how fragile his life was. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And what will come of your labor? All of your time, all of your efforts, all of God's blessing in your life, you can't take it with you. Billy Graham often said that he had never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Is there a picture? Oh, there you go. Now y'all cannot say that. But I'll guarantee you that the individual who was deceased in that hearse didn't get to keep the things that were in that U-Haul. Because the reality is the things that we have today, one day we will be gone. And you know what? Some of those things will still remain, but they won't belong to us because those things won't matter to us anymore. But warnings about greed are found in multiple places throughout the scriptures. Perhaps the clearest address is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. These are the words of the Apostle Paul who knew great prosperity early in life, yet as he chose to follow Jesus, he became quite accustomed to suffering and to poverty. At times, his needs would be met by him working a second job. He became what's known as a tent maker, and at other times, he would go so far as to be remanded to the prisons. In such cases, his poverty would be on full display, but this is what he said in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. And godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Paul displays great humility and grace. Can you imagine you were raised in a very wealthy home, very prosperous. You knew all the, the blessings that your 
world could ever imagine. And suddenly it was all taken away. That would be Paul. When you think about it, Paul, he knew prosperity. He's one of the most educated people, taught by the greatest teachers. He likely was one who, even as a child, his parents were very prosperous and, man, things were really good for him. But here he is. He has learned to be content with the little that he has. As long as I have the things I need, food and clothing, that's, that's enough for me. He displays great humility and grace. He recognizes he had nothing at birth and he'll have nothing at his death. And more than that, he is content with simply having the necessities. In fact, the pursuit of anything other than the Lord will always have the potential to become a stumbling block for any of us. So be wary of any type of greed. But there's something else that I want you to note today regarding greed. Greed is an interesting issue primarily because it's one of those sins that is almost always driven by something else. For example, one might become promiscuous because of a sexually abusive past or a search for some other type of true love. Or one might become a hoarder because they had very little when they were growing up. Or one might become greedy just because of a problem of selfishness. But I want to suggest to you that according to what Jesus says, one of the root causes of greed is actually fear and worry. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We stopped at the parable, but actually look what Jesus says immediately after this parable, beginning in verse 22. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barns, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Jesus begins this discussion on worry and fear with the word Therefore, connecting the last thought on greed to the current thought on worry and fear. In other words, it's not as if Jesus is simply going on to the next random thought or the next teaching moment. This is actually still a part of the discussion on greed. What he's saying is that for many people, greed is driven by our fear and worry of running out. Our fear of inadequacy, our fear that somehow what we have will not be enough. Now, let me give you some examples of how this shows up. In fact, maybe some of these will be a little bit familiar to you today. In March of 2020, the world went crazy. 
It was driven by all kinds of things. But I wonder, does anybody recognize this scene from three years ago? Probably most everyone here does. It's the toilet paper aisle, probably in a Walmart. I confess, I found the picture online. I'm not sure it was Walmart. Same thing happened where the cleaning supplies were located. A pandemic had hit, and it was like a blizzard in the south on steroids. I imagine that the milk and bread were gone too. Actually, it was fear and worry that caused a sudden rush on toilet paper. Nobody knew how long this pandemic would last, how long we'd be confined to our homes, even if we got out. Would there be any toilet paper left for us then? By the way, this didn't just go away in three or four months. I can actually remember shortly after everything had sort of lightened up, I remember going to a Sam's and the pandemic felt like it was over, but you walked back there to get toilet paper and they had signs that said limit one per customer. I'm thinking like one roll or one pack, I wasn't really sure. Or maybe for some of y'all, it wasn't the empty aisles that you saw. Perhaps you were one of the ones who stocked up and the next picture, that was what your basement looked like. Some of y'all won't need to buy toilet paper for about 12 years now. Thank you for that. Good job. Or another example is what happened recently in California. There was a bank that was known as Silicon Valley Bank. And apparently they had made some foolish investments. The re result was that they began to run short on money. Imagine that you had on deposit, you were one of the investors in that bank and you had $500,000 on deposit. And rumors started to swirl that the bank doesn't have that much money on hand. What are you going to do? In real life, people immediately headed down to the bank to get their money, but it wasn't there. Something very similar happened at the start of the Great Depression as suddenly everyone wanted to withdraw their funds and the banks were not prepared for it. People wanted their money now for fear that they might not get it if they waited. But we must be reminded that God did not give us a spirit of fear. He did not give us a spirit of worry. Actually, in Jesus' words, we are reminded that we have no legitimate reason to fear anyways. If God put so much effort into caring for the flowers and the grass and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, doesn't it also make sense that he will take care of us? Think about it, as God created the world back in Genesis chapter 1, each day the scripture would note that God saw that what he had created was good. But on the final day of creation, God created mankind, God created us in his image. And at the end of that day, in Genesis 1.31, we are told that God saw what he had created and he says it was very good. We were the crowning moment in his creation. If God loves you that much, don't you think he's going to take care of you? So why would we worry? The idea here is that we are his prized possession. He loves us so much that he would send his own son to die for us. 
Certainly, if he would do that for us, then he's not going to abandon us in this world. So why worry? There are a couple of things that I want to challenge you with this morning as I move to closing. First, maybe it's time for us to take an inventory of what God has done for us. Maybe it's time to stop and simply say thank you. We certainly all have plenty to say thanks for today. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's the people that are sitting around you in church today. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's a home. Maybe it's the fact that you live in a free country. Whatever it is, it's time for us to take an inventory. Maybe it's the salvation that God has granted to you. You know the wage of sin is death. That means all of us, regardless of how good or bad we might be, because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we all deserve death. You talk about God's goodness to you. The greatest thing he will ever do is to make salvation available to you and to me. We ought to stop and give thanks. God, thank you for loving me so much that you would give everything so that I could have eternal life. Second thing I want us to do today, maybe it's time for us to let go of our greed. You know, Jesus talked about a lot of stuff. You know what he talked about most? There are two topics. One was simply sin. The other was money. He knew that it would be something that would weigh heavily on our minds. But he also knew that money by itself would never satisfy us. But again, greed is not always about money. So what is it that you live for today? What is it that you seek out in hopes that it will satisfy you? Maybe it's time to start pursuing Christ with that same passion that you have for these other things. I mentioned the Apostle Paul earlier. He was so devout in his faith. He was so committed to keeping the Jewish faith pure that he poured himself into it. He went from city to city telling people to turn from this Jesus, having individuals arrested and many times even killed. He was all in. Many of us have been all in for a whole lot of stuff. Things that maybe at the time they seemed really important and maybe even today they seem very important. If your fulfillment and satisfaction is found in those things as opposed to your relationship with Jesus Christ, then I'm going to tell you your priorities are probably out of order. This is a problem. Jesus Christ and your relationship with him is, it ought to be the most important thing for you. Everything else falls under that. Everything else, it's okay to still make money. It's okay to still build relationships. It's okay to be successful. It's okay to have a nice home. But everything that we have falls under our relationship with Jesus Christ. That must be the most important thing for us. Maybe some of us today need to reprioritize. Finally, let me challenge you to let go of whatever it is that has caused you the most worry and fear. These are things that dominate our lives. And the underlying message of such worry and fear is that perhaps God is not truly able to take care of us. We've already defined the fact that he loves you more than anything else. 
the birds of the air, the grass in the field, the animals, whatever it is, they are nothing compared to you. You are his prized possession. Maybe you look at it and think, well, sure, God can take care of the grass because, come on, it's grass. But I'm complicated. I've got things that are very important in my life. I'm not sure God can take care of these things. You say, I would never think that way. But actually we do when we cling to our worry and fear. And what we're really saying is, God, I'm not sure you can handle it, so I'm going to handle it instead. Maybe what needs to happen is that we need to stop clinging to the worry and fear and instead allow God to simply take care of us. It doesn't mean to be irresponsible. It doesn't mean to not care about what's going on, but don't let those things be what dominates your life. Man, I've had individuals who have asked at times how you stay calm in the midst of all the craziness. I don't get too worked up most of the time, and I'll tell you why. Some of it, I think I'm simple-minded, and I, I think that I, I think shallow a lot of times. But I, I'll tell you, part of the reason is because I know my God is going to take care of me, and he's going to do a much better job than I would. In just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And as I do, I'm asking that God would help us to find peace and satisfaction in Christ alone. In fact, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We don't always do this, but I want to open up the altar this morning. Maybe for you, you would say, well, pastor, I have struggled with this issue of greed. There's something that is more important to me than God. And that's a problem. Maybe you need to come and confess. Or maybe for you, your struggle right now is worry, and there is something, maybe it's a loved one that is going through a difficult time, and you've spent so much time worrying about that loved one. Or maybe it's a concern about a job, or maybe it's a concern about what's in your bank account, whatever it is. I'm going to invite you to come, and maybe you need to lay your worry at the altar, and just to trust that the Lord will take care of that. Or maybe you just need to come and say, thank you. God, you've been good to me. I've taken it for granted. I've underestimated the value of this goodness. I'm going to ask everyone, if you would, to stand. And as you stand, I'm going to invite those who would like to come forward, maybe one of those three things. You'd like to come and just pray. I invite you to do so. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we're so grateful for you. Lord, you are, you are so good to us. Lord, we've talked about taking an inventory of all the things that you've done for us. And even right now, as we gather in this place, Lord, in each of our minds right now, we think of the things that you have done for us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you that you're constantly blessing us. So often we forget that it comes from you. We almost get this idea that these are things that we've done because we've worked hard or because we've just been in the right place. We can look at it almost as chance. But Lord, it has been by your grace that anything good has come of our lives. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the hope that we have of eternal life. Thank you for the many, many ways you've provided, not just spiritually, financially, physically, health-wise. Lord, thank you for all that you've done for us.
May we never take that for granted. As we come before you today, Lord, we confess that at times we have allowed wrong priorities to take root in our lives. Father, I pray today that you would once again set our priorities correct. Lord, I pray for those who perhaps they've been driven by a pursuit of money or a pursuit of a relationship or a pursuit of some type of respect. Lord, I pray whatever it is we've been looking for, Lord, that we would find fulfillment only in you. Lord, I pray today that all of those things that we look for, that they would fall under a relationship with you. And Lord, finally, I pray that you would ease the worry and fear that so often dominates our lives. Lord, help us today. Lord, help us to just draw near to you and to trust that regardless of what we face, that your grace will be sufficient for us. Lord, where worry has dominated our lives, may there be a peace that passes all understanding. That even when things look like it's falling apart, we know that the same God who reigned in those moments of success and goodness, that it is the same God who reigns in our lives now. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to just lean on you. Lord, we are grateful to know that when things do fall apart, there is one who will be there to love on us. Lord, help us never to take that for granted either. Lord, we give you praise for what you are doing in our hearts and lives. Make us a people fully devoted to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we close, I want to remind you, next Sunday is going to be our uh, Palm Sunday celebration. We're going to look at the triumphal entry. In case you didn't notice, there was some intentionality. We've been talking about the parables of Jesus. These are the things that led up to the crucifixion and the resurrection story. I want to challenge you and encourage you. Come be a part of what's going to take place over the next two weeks. It's a great time in the life of a church. It ought to be. In fact, it ought to be one of the greatest times in the life of a church. We're celebrating what this is all about. It wasn't about Christmas, Jesus coming to a manger. We're grateful for that. But you know, Jesus never told us to remember his birth. He does tell us that we ought to remember his death and his resurrection. His body being broken, his blood being shed. So come over the next two weeks if you wouldn't be a part of that. Thank you for being with us this morning and go in peace.